So we're going to continue. This is the last in the series on the women of the Bible that we're going to do. And today is Bathsheba. So I don't know if anyone had a chance to read through all of the passage on Bathsheba. She's a very talkative woman. As you'll see, she says almost nothing. There's very little there to go by. Because the story, she's really a supporting actor in all of the stories, right? If you think of it that way. Her role is secondary either to David or Solomon or somebody else. So we don't have a lot to go on. So we're probably going to end up with more questions unanswered than answered. And sometimes that's okay. So let's look at who Bathsheba was. Her name actually means the daughter of an oath. She's a really good oath keeper. Not particularly. She marries one of David's mighty men, is what he's called, Uriah the Hittite. He's a foreigner who David meets while David's hiding out from Saul in a cave. Uriah was a kind of a wanderer. He was a thug who met David in his time of need. David took him in and he becomes desperately loyal to David. In, so, in fact, so much, he's not only one of David's mighty men, he becomes part of his inner circle. Which makes this all the more difficult, perhaps. <clears throat> so the story is really, that we find Bathsheba in, is really about David and Solomon. Right? She's supporting them, in a sense, so we're reading this story of silence from her point of view almost. So when we see her not say anything, we have to wonder, was there really conversation or not? Right? I don't believe so. Because there's nothing recorded. But that doesn't mean necessarily, right? that there was no conversation. But we're reading this story and we're taking it from a position of silence because there is very little said about her. Right? Now we ourselves can oftentimes feel like the best thing for us to do is just keep our mouths shut, <coughs> our heads down, and keep moving forward in life. Right? Sometimes it would be easier for us to do that. But silence oftentimes has a price. We used to use a phrase with our kids when they were younger. I use it once in a while with them now, but not as much as I used to. Because when they were nervous um, to disagree with their teachers or adults, they just wouldn't. It was never about the disagreeing that I needed them to do. It was about what was best and usually not just for the individual in question, right? But for everyone involved. I needed them to speak for themselves. And so we would often tell the kids that they had to be their own best advocate, right? They had to advocate for themselves. And my mom smiles because she's heard us use that phrase often, right? Particularly when Alyssa was younger. Alyssa in particular, right? She has a learning disability. And so it makes it hard for her to learn as a result. And she needed to tell people when she needed help and what she needed and what was most helpful. And she wasn't telling anyone anything. 
right? She was just misagreeable. Everything is fine in the world with Alyssa, even when it's not, right? And so her teachers would say, Alyssa, let's try this. And Alyssa would be like, yeah, that's great. Okay, I love it. And they would do it, and it wouldn't work for Alyssa at all. And they would say, how did that work? Oh, it was great. <laughs> it didn't work, right? But Alyssa didn't tell them, I'm sorry, that we need to try something different. That was not it. And Alyssa wouldn't tell them when she had ideas of what she would like to try even, right? And so her silence was hurting her. And we needed to teach Alyssa to become her own best advocate and to advocate for herself. <laughs> She's not always great at that now. Gabe has gotten really good at it. <laughs> Alyssa, not so. We're still working on it. Hopefully one day. Because um, <clears throat> Alyssa knew what was best for her oftentimes, right? The rest of us trying to help her, we were guessing. We were saying things that would be helpful for us, to be honest. Not necessarily for her. And there were times we would suggest things she was not able to even do because of her disability. And we weren't seeing that until we tried to put it into action. So it was a mess. Um, she had to have her voice heard, though. And we wanted, that's the thing, right? We wanted to hear her voice. She just wasn't doing it. What about back to Bathsheba and her silence? Because of Bathsheba's silence and the lack of commentary that we have concerning her, we're left guessing what she was thinking, what she was feeling, what she's motivated by. But even still, I believe we can get pretty close to the truth based on her actions. So as we look at these two stories that we're going to look at today that she's involved in, we need to ask, what is the price that was paid for her silence? What if someone had had the moral courage to just speak up? So let's look at our story and the cost that comes with the silence. So it begins in, we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The first story is going to cover two chapters, 2 Samuel 11 and the first part of 12. It starts in 11 with this phrase. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out, that's the general of his armies, with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Ravah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So the author wants to make a point here, right? David should have been out as a good king fighting and leading this war. But he'd gotten lazy. And he was just hanging out in Jerusalem doing nothing. And his laziness isn't just physical, right? He's gotten spiritually lazy and that's going to lead him into sin. So our story begins here. One evening, David got up from his bed. He ain't got nothing else to do. Walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So he looks out and, hey, look at here. There's a woman taking a bath. That's normal, right? 
no. I have a ton of questions that come to my mind when I look at this, none of which we have answers to. And David sent someone to find out about this woman. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he says, hey, look, there's this woman who I can see bathing. Did she know he was able to see her rooftop from where she was at? Was it the first time that she was ever up there? No. Right? The rooftop was a typical place they would hang out in the evening because it was cool. So they would have been able to see out at the palace. They knew David was up there at times. Right? She would have known David went up there. Wait, Uriah was part of his inner circle. She would have known David. Right? So when there were court things happening, Uriah was part of his inner court. So she would have gone to those with Uriah. She would have known who David was. She's met David, I guarantee it. She knew David's weaknesses because everybody knew David's weaknesses by now. David had a thing for the ladies. At this point in time, he has stolen not one wife, but two already. Right? Another one we can argue. Right? Abigail... Her husband dies, but that's because David scared him to death. He caused the old man to have a heart attack, and he took his wife. This is how David lives his life. David, from the beginning of his life to the end, has got a problem with women. He succumbs to the beauty of women consistently, and I believe she knew it. Right? We don't know that for certain, but based on <coughs> what we're going to read here soon, um, I think there was a plan. Right? So he finds out who it is. This, this should give him pause, right? This is his buddy Uriah. They've been through junk together. They've fought battles together. They've killed other men together. Right? They've had each other's back in the worst of circumstances together. But David sends messengers to get her. She comes to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. No idea why it feels the need to tell us that, but it does. And then she went back home. That's all we get. No discussions, no nothing. He sends messengers, she comes, and they sleep together. Let's assume she's not a 100% willing participant. Right? Let's say she's not, even though I think she is. Let's say she's not. She's not trying to get with David somehow, or right? Let's say she didn't know what was happening, right? That he calls her to his apartment his house and they she comes before him and he's like hey you're beautiful i'm the king want to sleep with me 
I personally believe, knowing David and the man that he was, if she had said, no, I'm a married woman, I'm sorry, I can't do this, David would have relented, sent her home, and that would have been the end of the story. Right? David would not have forced his power upon her as king. Right? Knowing what we know of David, did he have a problem with the women? Yes. But he never went that far. Right? He did some crazy stuff, and we're going to see some crazy stuff happen here. Right? David has his problems. But I don't think he would have forced himself on her. If she had only spoken. How history would have changed for David. David's life, because of this moment, and what's going to follow from this moment, is an absolute wreck. All because of this. There's a cost she's going to have to pay and a cost he's going to have to pay because of her silence. Oh, the woman conceived. She sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Guaranteed that's not what David was hoping to hear. So David's got to do something. So what David does is he sends for Uriah, who's out at war, right? Where David should have been, not messing around with somebody's wife. David should have been off to war. So he sends to Joab and tells Joab the general, send Uriah to me, because he's going to try and cover it up, right? So he brings Uriah home and he says, go down to your house, wash your feet, right? Get all cleaned up. So Uriah left the palace. And a gift from the king was sent after him. So he's got him here, brings him back, even sends a gift home with him. Right? Welcome home, Uriah. Yeah, well, Uriah's not going to have any of it. Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Uriah is fiercely loyal to David. He is fiercely loyal to Joab. He is fiercely loyal to his men. And he refuses to have the pleasures that he might have while he's here, while his men and the men of Israel are out fighting. He's a Hittite. He's not an Israelite even. And he refuses to go and even see his wife. Because he needs to be, he feels, where the rest of the men are. Not here at home. But David messes it all up. So at David's invitation, that didn't work, right? He eats and he drinks with him. David gets him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants again. And he did not go home. So... David is doing everything he can to get Uriah to go home in order to sleep with his wife so then it looks like this child is Uriah's. But because of Uriah's loyalty to David, to Joab, and to his men, he refuses. All these things we should be seeing in David right now, we're seeing in Uriah. Played out perfectly. 
In the morning, David writes a letter to Joab, and he sends it with Uriah. He's got to do something, I guess. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front with a fighting as fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So he writes a letter to Joab saying, basically, have Uriah killed. He folds it up, seals it, puts it in Uriah's own hand, and says, take this to Joab. Uriah returns to Joab with this writ of his death and gives it to Joab. And Joab does as he's told. He sends Uriah out in the front. Then we read in verse 17, When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David is guilty of murder. And not just of Uriah, right? It makes it clear. Some of the men in David's army fell because of the decision David had made. This was his army. And he caused their death because of decisions he made to cover up his sin. Bathsheba hears of his death and she mourns. She mourns his death. Right? I hope and suspect she cared for Uriah. The very next thing we read about her. After the time of mourning was done, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son because she was already pregnant. But the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. So God's going to step in now and he's going to send Nathan. Nathan's a prophet in the land. Right? And Nathan doesn't know, right? Because they've hidden this. But God's told Nathan what has happened. And so he sends Nathan with a story to tell David. Because he gives David the opportunity to do what's right and he does what's wrong. So Nathan sends him with this story. And he tells him this story, and David gets angry at the person in the story, and Nathan says, you're the man. And when he does, David then falls before Nathan and repents, right? But then Nathan says, but here's the deal. This is what God says to you. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah, Uriah, the Hittite, to you be your own. So the Lord is saying, look, you despised me so much that you took this woman who was married to someone who was committed to you. And so now here's the deal. The sword will never depart from your house. Remember that, because we're going to see a lot of death. continues and he says, This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, 
I am going to bring calamity on you. So the problem is going to happen within his own home, right? Because he caused problems in someone else's home. God is going to cause problems in his home. And God says, Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your eyes in broad with your wives in broad daylight. Okay. This is the heavy cost of silence. This is the price that must be paid. Because all she had to do is say no. Now, David's at fault, right? I'm not placing the blame on her. They're both at fault here. David is going to pay a heavy price, but so is Bathsheba. These words will forever haunt both David and Bathsheba. They will live their lives in fear because of this prophecy. They both hear this prophecy. This prophecy is given publicly before the court. Right? Nathan doesn't go privately to David. He stands in front of all of Israel and says, This is what the Lord says to you. The sword will never depart your house. And I'm going to take your wives and give them to someone who is close to you. Whew. And then the Lord says, You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. That's a price to pay because someone chose not to speak. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. So Nathan says, Look, the Lord has forgiven you because you have willingly repented. But because you did this, by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. And so this son, this boy is born. He's born with an illness and he lives for seven days. Seven days, David and Bathsheba would have loved on this child. While they were loving him, they were already mourning his loss. Because they knew there was nothing they could do to save him. And then the child died. This is the heavy cost of silence. They both knew what they were doing was wrong, but no one had the moral courage to simply speak. So that's our first story. Right? So now we're going to move to the second story we have, and we're going to find the exact same problem yet again. At this point, David is now near the end of his life. He's almost dead. And we're going to have to answer the question, who will be king? Adonijah is his oldest son. He has a lot of sons. right? A lot of kids, because he had a lot of wives. He was making lots of babies. 
Adonijah is his oldest son. And therefore, Adonijah assumes he's next in line to be king because that's the way it should work, right? Yeah. Except that David had a soft part, soft, soft part of his heart for Bathsheba. And he had already promised in front of Nathan that Solomon would be king. So they both knew this. Solomon knew it. Bathsheba knew it. Nathan knew it. Nobody else knew it, though. And because nobody knew, everyone had been silent about it, Adonijah assumes, and others assume, he's next in line. And that's going to cause some problems. So, Nathan then comes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Solomon's an adult by now. David is near death. And Nathan says to Bathsheba, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And our Lord David knows nothing about it. So Adonijah goes out and simply makes himself king. He figures he's next in line. So he goes and gets the priest, the high priest, Joab, the leader of the military, right? And he brings them and says, crown me king. And they do it and they celebrate. Because it just makes sense, right? This is what should be happening. And then Nathan's going to play on Bathsheba's fears. And he says, now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Because this family has had a history of problems with these boys. These boys have been, at times, almost evil with one another. Right? There's been murder. Um, it's not... We'll get to some of the other stuff here in a bit with Absalom. These boys, his boys are a real problem. Solomon is the only decent one among them, it seems like. I'm sure there were others, but they're just not mentioned for some reason. So Adonijah has taken the throne. Nathan comes and he says, look, if you want to live, you need to go to David. And you need to make sure this is right. So he's going to tell her exactly what you need to say. He says, go into David and say to him, my lord the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? So she goes in. Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room. He's old, he's dying. Where Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending him. All right. So she makes this request to David. But who is this person, Abishag, the Shunammite? She is a beautiful virgin, we're told earlier in the story, who had been chosen to be David's last concubine. This is important information that we oftentimes miss. David's nearing his death, and so his body's not regulating his temperature correctly, right? So as much as they're covering up, he's still cold. And so what they do is they get Abishag, the Shunammite, to come in, and what she's going to do is lie naked next to his body to keep him warm. That's her job. Right? And well, David likes the young, beautiful women. And so that's what they're getting. So Bathsheba comes in. Abishag's in there in bed with him. And it does say they never had sex. 
the dude can't keep his temperature up, right? He's not strong enough for anything, right? They don't have to tell us that, but they choose to, right? That's earlier in the story as well. Um, <clears throat> but she is his concubine, and that's important to remember, right? Because it's going to come into play later. So Bathsheba comes in, gives him this news that Adonijah has taken the throne. And so David goes, nope, not happening. And he declares Solomon to be king. So then King David said, right, he calls in the elders and he tells the elders, no, this isn't going to happen. I've declared Solomon to be king already. We're going to call. This is what's going to occur. So then she call, he calls Bathsheba back in. She came, comes into the king's presence and stands before him. Then the king takes an oath and he says, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. David dies, and Solomon becomes king. Lots of fanfare, parties, it's a good time, right? But this whole time, Adonijah believes himself to be the rightful heir to the throne. Adonijah is certain he should be king. So he comes up with his scheme. He knows he'll never actually be king, but he's going to make a symbolic statement. And so here's what he does, right? Oh, I don't jump ahead. So Bathsheba was all excited that David did this, right? And she says to David, may my Lord King David live forever. Sorry about that. I missed that part. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and he asks Bathsheba, or Bathsheba asks him, do you come peacefully? <laughs> she knows. He thinks he should be the rightful heir. And that the sword will never depart the house of David. And so she's fearful he has come to kill her. And he replies, yes, peacefully. Then he added, I have something to say to you. So she says, you may say it. Now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. You may make it, she says. So he continues, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. So he wants David's last and final concubine. Remember that, right? Because that's important. Why would he ask for Abishag to be his wife? This beautiful virgin. She would have been, she would have become the concubine of King Solomon after David's death. Because you see, part of his inheritance would have been all of his concubines. I know, right? Weird. Because we don't do that kind of thing anymore. Yeah, Solomon would have had all those women now. They would have been his. That's his concubine. He's not really asking for David's, right? He's asking for King Solomon's concubine. Does Bathsheba understand the gravity of what she's being asked to do? 
I think so. I think she understands. And we're going to look at that. But yet again, she chooses to be silent. So she takes the request to Solomon. And she says, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. The king replies, make it my mother. I will not refuse you. He's all happy. Mom's here. And she says, let Abishag the Shunammite be given in marriage to your brother Adonijah. And at this point, we've heard every word Bathsheba will ever speak in the scriptures. <laughs> there isn't much, right? Just this little conversation. And it seems innocent at best. But her silence is horrible. This again, she's going to pay for the silence. Well, somebody's going to pay for her silence. Right? So she, she makes this request. She could have told Adonijah, no, I'm not making that request. But yet she does it. King Solomon answers his mother, Why do you request Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? You might as well, re might as well request the kingdom for her. After all, he is my older brother, right? Pointing out, he thinks he's next in line. And the truth is, a lot of people probably in Israel assume he should be next in line because he's the oldest. Yes, for him and for Abiathar, who is the priest who crowned him, and Joab, the general, the son of Zariah. He's angry at this. Why would he get angry? Wait, he goes on. And he says, Then King Solomon swore by the Lord. He says, My God, de deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request. Okay, is this girl this pretty? Actually, has nothing to do with her. So we have to look back at some other stories to get this, right? This is Absalom. Absalom is one of David's sons. Absalom leads a revolt against David and wins and pushes David off the throne. Absalom and his men kill a lot of Israelites, taking the throne. And David is defeated for a brief time. Absalom briefly claims his throne from his from the claims the throne from his father. During this time period, when you overthrew a king, what you would do is you would take his wives and his concubines to the rooftop of the palace and rape them to show that you have taken what was most prized by the deposed king. Guess what Absalom did? 2 Samuel 16, verse 22. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father, father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Wait a second. 2 Samuel 12, 11 said, This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. 
Absalom fulfilled his prophecy when he took over the kingdom from David. Solomon remembered this, right? He knew look, Adonijah might not be king, but he's trying to take a concubine to make his wife, to make a political statement, basically. Right? That's all that is. As a result, King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. Benaiah was like the king of the, was like the leader of the secret service kind of thing, you would say. And he struck down Adonijah and he died. The sword will never depart from your house, David. Your own sons will kill each other. Even after the death of David, the heavy cost of silence can be felt. Matthew 1, 6. In the lineage of Jesus, Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Bathsheba's ultimate price paid for her silence is God's silence in regards to her name. He refuses to speak her name in the line of his one and only son. There is a price to be paid for silence. What of our own silence when faced with situations in which we must or should speak. We are the only ones who will be our own best advocates. And when others will not are unable to advocate for themselves, we must speak. The heavy cost of silence is always there. We must be careful though. We must never speak for vengeance, but only in the defense of what is righteous. There is a heavy cost that will be paid if we are silent at times. My family paid a heavy price for my silence at one point. In the face of lies and half-truths twisted to tell a false story, I was once attacked publicly, as was my family all in order to see a man's agenda come about for his own power and glory. And in the face of these attacks against me, I was silent. My family was wounded because of this. I was wounded because of this. There is a price to be paid for silence. Storms are going to come. We will be battered and we will be beaten but Jesus. Jesus is the healer of all wounds. Jesus is our light in the darkness. Jesus is our strength. Jesus is the solid ground upon which we stand. And because we stand in the strength of Christ, we should never fear speaking the truth in love. <laughs>